Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time, it's episode 89, and we have to tackle that difficult yet ever-present issue. Why do people hate us so much? We're also going to talk about Riv Nuts and my recent experience with them, a tale from the road involving my crotch, uh, and a product review of an MPPT DC to DC combo that I actually really like. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks so much for joining me once again. I'm kind of excited about this episode because I get to dive into some things that are uncomfortable. And for some reason, I like talking about those things. <laughs> A little bit of news, though. I have finally reached 1,000 subscribers on my YouTube channel. I will no longer be bugging you to subscribe. And I haven't produced any content for the YouTube channel in about two weeks because I have been busy at work converting my ambulance into an RV, which as of yesterday, which would be Tuesday, the Secretary of State of Illinois Police, which is its own police force, has officially said that yes, my ambulance is an RV and may be titled and registered as such. That was a little bit of a process. In fact, let me tell you about that really quick, and this varies state by state. This isn't the main topic, but it's important. Every state has a definition of what an RV is, and a lot of these were written years ago, and they can be very esoteric. And in order to retitle your school bus, your truck, or whatever as an RV, you're going to need to follow some rules, and you need to check what it is for the, each state. In Illinois, I had a six-part checklist. I needed to fulfill four of the things on the six parts, and I needed to have a pass-through cab. If you have a bulkhead that does not let you get to the front of your vehicle, no matter what kind of vehicle it is, in the state of Illinois, it cannot be an RV. It's all bizarre and it doesn't make any sense. Nobody's actually thinking about this. It's just old rules and laws that they're just carrying forward. So if you have a vehicle that you're converting into an RV and you would like to register it as an RV, which may have benefits wherever you live, definitely go and check your state rules for it. And then read forums too about other people's experiences. At any rate, that's not what I wanted to talk about this time. I'm just sharing my news because I'm very happy about that. It took me a long time and I was worried about it. No, I want to talk about why people hate us so much. Now, by that I mean, what is the stigma of van life? Why is there one? And this isn't new. There has always been a stigma associated with people who are not permanently located in one place. All you have to do is look at the history of the travelers in Ireland, the Romani in Europe. Any nomad group has always felt like they were not part of society because they're treated like they're not part of the society. And in some ways, they aren't. We, we'll get into that. Carnival workers also face this. You've heard the expression, carny trash. Well, that's part of this thing, that temporary people are not to be trusted and are to be shunned and driven out of town. I think the number one reason for this is xenophobia. Xenophobia, fear of the strange, is something that is inherent in humanity. We are born with it. It is a survival mechanism. If you think about our evolution over the years, growing up on the savannas of Africa, in groups of 150, there's been all kinds of research about this, xenophobia made some sense. Strangers were dangerous. They were trying to take your resources. You needed to protect them, blah, blah, blah. Unfortunately, that is so ingrained in us that it 
comes up all the time in modern society in things such as racism and nativism and nimbyism, not in my backyard syndrome. We have all of that going on. And van life is a perfect target for it because we are visible. They can see us and they can point a finger and say, you're living in a van down by the river. You are bad or you are a threat or you are a parasite or whatever, whatever derogatory term they decide to use that time. Is that justified at all? I'll, I would say no. I mean, if we, if you live in a city, you're around strange people all the time, and you don't automatically think that, oh, that person is a threat. You know, you get on the subway with 40 other people. You're not thinking, I'm in a little metal box with 39 threats. It's just not how it is. You take precautions, of course, but you don't have this automatic reaction. But for folks in some parts of the country, especially places that are near attractions to folks living in vans or traveling in vans, they are already on edge about visitors from away, and they have had bad experiences, which just reinforce that. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people traveling in vans and RVs and their vehicles who, because they aren't staying there, they don't see any consequences to being a bad actor, and they act badly. They leave their litter behind. They dump their black tanks in ditches on the sides of the road. They make a lot of noise. All those stereotypes, which I'm sure none of my listeners actually fit into, that is a problem for all of us. Because, again, if you're in the small town in Iowa that's near this really beautiful spot and you see one person in a van peeing on the side of the road or something, then that's it. You have confirmed your suspicion that people in vans are bad. We have to understand that we are representatives of all people living in vans, and it is not fair, but that's just how it is. There's another problem, too. There are a lot of people who believe conformity is important and necessary. I mean, if you go to Asia, the idea that you would look different is shunned upon in Japan, for example. The Chinese Communist Party is all about conformity. But here in the U.S., conformity is also a really big issue. If you think about religious communities where everyone is dressed exactly the same, or everyone has to have the same beliefs. Uh, many church services, there's a reading of what we all believe. You know, it, the Conformity is very important to a lot of people because it gives them security in that they know that that stranger, as long as they're a part of my church or community, they are following a set of rules that we have all agreed on. And when someone shows up in a van, that assumption is gone. It tends to be a conservative value, in my experience, where you see somebody who is acting differently from you, and that's bad. It's an anti-diversity sentiment, and those of us living in vans are a diverse community. Well, first off, van life is pretty diverse to begin with. There's all kinds of people doing van life. Conservative, liberal, all different races, all different ethnic backgrounds, and I mean, that's one of the nice things about van life is that everybody can do it. Everybody. There, there is no organization. There's no authority. You just do it if you want to. And that, that's wonderful. And that encourages diversity. But that is not welcome everywhere. I have been noticing in my travels that I, because I'm doing the Aurora Project, I have been talking to people more than I normally do. I, I normally will go into a community and kind of not talk to anybody. I'll just observe. That's what I like to do. 
And now with the Aurora Project, I find that I have to talk to people. And boy, it's really interesting that they're very suspicious of me, especially when they find out I'm from Chicago. Because a lot of folks in these rural communities think Chicago is hell incarnate. It's Satan's home. Chicago has a terrible reputation in small rural communities, which it doesn't deserve. I live here. I do not dodge bullets as I leave the house. You know, there's a lot of misconceptions about big cities, but it is something that uh, does cause hate. It does cause prejudice. There is a value that To be a good citizen, you must live in a house, and you must have a family, and you must have a job, and all these things, that if you are not following in line with that, you are a threat, and you are a bad person. You are a sinner. We have that burden, and it's not our burden, actually. It's the burden of the people casting those judgments upon us, but we have to be aware of them and deal with them because they're a reality. There's another group that doesn't get talked about very much. It's kind of funny, but people who are very eco-aware, people who are concerned about global warming and concerned about living in the most environmentally friendly way, they don't like van life. And that may come as a surprise because there's a lot of those folks doing van life. You know, they're out there living in their van, thinking about all the energy and money they're saving, and they're wandering in nature with their dogs, feeling like, oh, this is great. But folks who like numbers and who are looking at this stuff are realizing that, well, those dogs, they're a huge increase in the carbon footprint of the people doing this. You're traveling in a vehicle that in most cases gets terrible gas mileage, you're actually hurting the environment by traveling in a van. This is this is a perspective. This is an opinion. And it's an interesting one, and I think it's something we should all consider. But those folks will not like people living in vans. And it's funny because some of them tend to be backpackers. You may encounter people backpacking who will look down upon you for having a van. Like, oh, why can't you just sleep in a tent like a, like a normal eco-conscious person? You know... Again, it's just an opinion. It's not something you need to worry about. It's just something to be aware of. I, I think it's kind of funny because to me, van life is about camping. It's just camping in a metal tent that moves. But for other people, it's seen as very, very wasteful. Here's one I ran into recently. I, uh, I, Hey, I bought an ambulance, as though I haven't said that like 300 times. I put pictures of it online and somebody was really angry that I would have the gall to buy an ambulance and park it in the parking lot of my condominium building. And they said that, well, I sure wouldn't want that parked on my street. Like, why not? And their answer is because, well, it's an eyesore. This person wanted to police everybody else's cars. And in fact, they actually do. There was somebody who parked a car on their street that had a, a cover over it and they, they called the police. <laughs> Um, that these folks exist and they really want you to conform to their ideas of beauty. You know, if you live in an HOA, you have encountered these folks. They want everything to look good to them and they have no regard for other people's desires or wants. So some people think vans are ugly, all of them. And that leads into the final point, which is that vans are noticeable. My NV200 was pretty stealth. People didn't really notice it. The ambulance, ugh, there's nothing I can do to make that not noticeable. It's a big white sprinter van with big red stripes and lights in strange places. And even though I've removed everything that says ambulance, 
everybody knows it's an ambulance. And now it's even more visible than an ambulance because it's a weird ambulance. And just that fact, just the fact that you have caught somebody's attention means that some of that attention is going to be negative. And that's just uh, something you have to live with. I mean, it's an argument for stealth. And, and again, I define stealth as being not noticeable. I don't define it as being invisible. I just, you want people to not notice you. That's the point of stealth. And that's another argument for it. All that said, what does it mean? What should you do? Should you just like give up on van life? Of course not. Your job is not to please other people. Your job is to live your life. And van life may be a great way for you to live your life. It's a great way for me to live my life. And heck, I'm going to do it. It is, I would say, an obligation for me to live my life as considerately and compassionately as possible. I do intend to be kind whenever I possibly can. But if other folks don't like what I'm doing, that is their problem. And I am just going to navigate around it like a rock in a river. Tech Talk. Let's talk about RivNuts. You have watched a lot of YouTube videos about people building vans. I'm positive that you have. And you have seen these things called RivNuts or PlusNuts or CrossNuts and wondered about them and wondered why people are using them. Well, I haven't used them. I, I actually prefer self-tapping screws. And I know a lot of people, I, I've talked about self-tapping screws in the past. They have problems, but they're super easy. And they're often enough. They're often all you need in my experience. It depends what kind of a build you're doing. But I have used RivNuts recently and I wanted to give you my experience and talk about why you might want to use them. So RivNuts are, as it sounds like, rivets that are nuts. And that's a brand name. They are called threaded inserts generically. The idea is that you will make a hole or find a hole, insert this rivet with a special tool, press a handle or squeeze handles together, and it will squeeze that nut into the hole so that that hole becomes basically a big nut. You can put a screw into it. And it's very firm, and it's very useful in places where you can't reach the other side. So I just put solar panels on my ambulance, and I built my own roof rack. But Sprinter vans have holes in the roof already there for adding a roof rack. It's, it's part of the factory build. But they're just holes. They're literally just a hole in the roof covered with a plastic cap. So I drilled those out, but I couldn't reach the other side because the ambulance is already built out. I would have had to have removed all the cabinets, and I'm not doing that. So RivNuts were the perfect solution. I simply put them in the hole, got the right size, that's important, and then squeezed the tool, and then I was able to just screw into them like there were nuts in the roof of the van. And they're waterproof because the nut takes up all the space. Of course, I did seal them and everything. So Cross nuts, plus nuts, riv nuts, these things, they come in different sizes. There are different kinds of tools. It's actually a very big topic. But if you have a case where you need a really strong way to screw something in and you can't get at the other side, this might be the way to go. I got a very small one. It was called a Surebonder threaded insert tool. I'll have a link in the show notes. This one was just the right size for the holes in the roof of the Sprinter van. But it used I had to use the biggest rib nuts it could handle, and it took a lot of strength to do this. So if you're not a person with a lot of hand strength, you will want to buy a bigger tool than I used. 
Mine looks like a staple gun or can maybe a pair of pliers, kind of a cross between the two. They make them in all different sizes, and they look like giant bolt cutters. And with the big ones, you can put on really big, heavy rivnuts. And a really important part of rivnuts is that they are designed for screws to come in and go out, come in and go out. They won't strip out as easily as a self-tapping screw, which will strip out super easy. Self-tapping screws are not very strong. They're just very convenient. So give Rivnuts a thought. I am not somebody who's afraid to drill holes in my van. I do not mind putting a self-tapping screw through a rib in the inside of my van. That does not bother me at all. But there are times where Rivnuts make more sense and putting them on the roof of my Sprinter, well, that was one. Tales from the road. Oh boy. All right. Someone has asked me to tell this tale. This is a crazy tale. How does it relate to van life? I don't know. It doesn't really, um, except that I did a van life episode 10 episodes ago about urine and this involves urine. So, Hey, there's a connection, right? Let me, let me tell you why I'm telling this story. Um, I used to work for the James Randy Educational Foundation. James Randy is, or rather was, he died not too long ago, a retired magician who, who in his later years followed in the steps of Houdini to basically investigate and when necessary debunk people who were claiming to have psychic abilities or occult powers or whatever. Because as a magician, he knew that they were just doing magic tricks. Because of this, he started something called the Million Dollar Challenge, which was that if you could prove, under scientific observing conditions, any paranormal, supernatural, or occult phenomenon, he would pay you $1 million. Now, as it happened, I was the person who managed the Million Dollar Challenge for a few years, and I can tell you first off that the million dollars was real. It was sitting in a Goldman Sachs account. We made interest off of it. It was actual real money that somebody donated. And we had to develop tests, and a lot of times the claims were really strange, and the tests were difficult, and sometimes they were impossible. Like, somebody said, I could prove that God exists. Well, how? there's no test for that because God is undefined. So we would have to get rid of claims like that and just say we can't test them. But we did have claims that were testable. Uh, one of the most common ones was dowsing, like using dowsing rods to find water. We could test that very easily. By the way, it always failed. And we could test things like remote viewing, like people who said they could see what was inside an envelope. Lots of magic tricks around that. We knew what they were, and we were able to find out the frauds. But what we ended up finding was that an awful lot of people weren't frauds. They were just either confused or deluded or, sadly, in many cases, seemed to be suffering from mental illness. One of those such people, who I, I shouldn't have actually worded it like that, I do not believe this person was mentally ill, was Rosemary. Rosemary had a very unusual claim. She said that she could control people's emotions through the power of God. Now, we don't care where the power comes from, so we were able to just put that aside. All we cared about was the claim. She can control people's emotions. That's hard to test. I can make you happy. I can make you sad. Well, that's a power everybody has. <laughs> so we had to find a way to test it, and then she stated that she had the power to make people lose bladder control. We can test that. But there's a problem. 
our testing was always to be done by third parties. We would arrange the test and approve the test, but we weren't directly involved because obviously we had a bias, or at least we had a perceived bias, that we would want people not to win the challenge. In reality, we actually hoped somebody would because it would have been an amazing moment for science, but we were pretty sure nobody would. But in this case, it was the opposite. Because if we had a third party involved in this, there was no way we could be sure that they had a motivation not to wet their pants. And because maybe they had talked with Rosemary and made a little deal that Rosemary would split the money with them or something like that. We didn't know. So in fact, in this case, we had to use our own staff to tell whether Rosemary actually had the powers. And yeah... I was the staff. I was the staff because I was intimately familiar with the protocol. I had a very strong motivation not to pee my pants. And I was ineligible from winning the challenge because I worked for the organization. So it actually fell in that I was the right person for this. Lucky me. So we set up the protocol, and that was that I would empty my bladder before the test because she claimed that she could also produce the urine that was released. So there was no chance of an accidental spillage or anything like that. I had a clean bill of health with normal bladder health. That was all fine. And basically, I had to present myself in front of Rosemary, and she had 15 minutes to pray or use her powers or whatever to make me pee my pants. Did I mention that we streamed this live? Yeah, this was a live event that was on the internet. This is back in the early days. It was before streaming was as popular. It was in the very early days of YouTube. In fact, I think the video is still up there. No, I'm not linking to it. First, I had to demonstrate that if I wet my pants, it would be visible. So I actually had to take some water and spray it down my pants to show that it would show up on my jeans, which it did, and I then let that dry. And then I had a camera pointed at my crotch for 15 minutes while Rosemary did her thing. So yes, folks, uh, one of my most watched videos that I didn't actually make, it was Rich from the JREF made the video, uh, is of my crotch for 15 minutes. So uh, yeah, I've got that going for me. Did Rosemary succeed? Well, well, no, Rosemary didn't succeed. In fact, um... She, she was very confused that she didn't succeed. See, Rosemary was a believer. She was a true believer. She thought she had these powers because she was able to prove to herself over and over that she did. But what she didn't understand was confirmation bias and how easily our brain can trick itself into believing things. And that's why science exists, to remove bias from our decision-making. And so in this case... Rosemary, who I have a great fondness for, she was an absolutely lovely person. She learned something, and I'm very happy about that. I don't know where she ended up, but she believed she had this power. She was willing to be tested, and I have a lot of respect for that. And yeah, there's 15 minutes of my crotch on YouTube. Product review. I, wanting to keep things simple, decided to get a combination solar controller and DC to DC charger. These things exist, they don't seem super popular in the YouTube world where everyone wants their Victron this and their Renogy that and you end up with these wall of like 30 different components doing stuff. I don't want that, I like simplicity and there are these devices that combine your solar charge controller and your DC to DC charger, that is your battery to battery charger, in one very small unit. And I bought two of them, actually. 
The first one I bought did not work. I spent hours and hours and hours troubleshooting it, and it was just a bad unit, so I had to return it. And uh, I'm not reviewing that one because it didn't work, but I will tell you which one it is, so if you wanted to avoid it, you could. And it is called, and it was a 40 amp Canruis unit, uh, K-A-N-R-U-I-S. That one did not work for me, I returned it. But the one that I have now, I love, actually. After I hooked it up, and it was pretty easy to hook up. You have a wire that goes from the automotive battery to the unit, and then a wire that goes from the unit to your leisure battery. Ground wires, of course, and then the same thing for solar. You have a solar in and a ground wire, and that's it. Now that I've hooked it up, if it's sunny out, the solar power is charging my battery, and I'm getting 40 amps of charge. Well, <laughs> I can get up to 40 amps of charge from solar. I only have 300 watts of solar. You're never going to get 40 amps of power out of 300 watts of solar. But I am getting enough power through this thing that if I run my refrigerator, it's also charging the battery. And then when I start the engine, I get a full 40 amps of charging, which I think is great. Yes, you can get bigger ones, and yes, my Sprinter does have a 220 amp alternator, which is bigger than many vehicles, so you have to check on that. But, wow, does this simplify things. I have one little box, and this thing is very small. It's the size of a Lean Cuisine box, and it fits under my driver's seat. Now, there are some caveats here. One is that it doesn't have a lot of information. It has a few lights on it. I can tell whether it's charging via solar or via the engine battery, and I can tell if it's on, and I can tell if the battery is full, which I'm assuming it does via voltage. And you can set the charging profile. So if you have AGM, you set it on AGM. If you have lithium, you set it on lithium. That's all good. Unlike, say, the Renogy units, you can't tell what your battery capacity is or how many amp hours you've used or even how many amps are coming in and out. I bought a Hall Effect Ammeter for that. I'll talk about that in a future episode. If you're running out of space and you want to make things simple, I definitely recommend this thing. It was $200. That is kind of a lot, but DC to DC chargers often cost more than that, and then you have to buy a solar controller on top of it, and this combines the two in one unit. So for simplicity, it's great. For data reporting, it is terrible. So you have to make your choice. A place to visit, and very quickly because this episode's already going too long. I found this place in Pennsylvania years ago, and it's really cool, and it, it kind of ties in with the JREF stuff because it was supposed to be a paranormal place. It is called Ringing Rocks Park, and it's in Bucks County in Pennsylvania. Again, links in the show notes. Imagine a waterfall, or actually, imagine a ski slope. Okay, so you've got that, and there's this big, it's lots of trees, and then there's this big open area filled with snow. Imagine it wasn't filled with snow, but it was filled with boulders roughly the size of cannonballs. That's what this place is like, and it's completely natural. Nobody made this. What happened was there was a lava flow millions of years ago, and the lava was of the basalt type. The basalt came out, and then over the years, it has cracked and weathered into these round-ish boulders. So that's kind of cool as it is, and you can climb up there if you want. It's a little bit dangerous, but yeah. You're an adult. You can make your own decisions. But the weird thing is, is that this basalt 
rings. If you take a hammer and hit the rocks, it produces a tone. In fact, this type of basalt has been used to make xylophones at science centers. I know the one on the Vermont, New Hampshire border has one. But it's a lot of fun. It's a state park. You climb up the rocks and you can bring a hammer and each one has a different tone because because the size of the rock dictates the tone. And I think if you're clever enough, you might even be able to play some music if you get them in the right places. If you're traveling through Pennsylvania, check out Ringing Rock State Park. It's kind of a cool, unique, natural phenomenon and might be a nice place to stay over. There is a campground nearby and there's probably other places to park too. This is a rural part of Pennsylvania, so you shouldn't have too much trouble. Resource recommendation. Well, since we're talking about the JRF this episode, I would like to point everybody, and not just van life people, basically everybody, to an amazing tool to help you decide whether something is baloney or not. And no, this isn't a guide to delicatessens. This is a guide to trying to figure out if someone is lying to you or someone is promoting a bogus product. And it is called Carl Sagan's Baloney Detection Kit. I have a link in the show notes. It is just the most basic, simple way to quickly evaluate whether something is likely to be true or not. Now, there's an old expression that if you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras. But sometimes those hoofbeats are zebras. There was a case where zebras escaped from the zoo in Virginia many years ago, and indeed those hoofbeats were from zebras. But most of the time, it's going to be horses. Carl... Carl, my buddy Carl. So Carl lists nine things you're basically supposed to look for, and I'm not going to read down the whole list. There's a link in the show notes again. But some of these things are not so obvious. Like one is try not to get overly attached to your hypothesis. This is a way to detect your own baloney. And uh, a perfect example of this is if you believe in ghosts and you saw a ghost. If someone comes to you and says that ghosts aren't real, they're trying to take that away from you because your belief in seeing a ghost is like finding treasure in your backyard. And who wants someone to come and take our treasure away? But if you're in pursuit of the truth, you kind of have to allow that treasure to be taken away. Occam's razor is in here. Occam's razor is that basically, usually, most often the simplest explanation is the one that's true. Again, hear hoofbeats, think horses, because horses are much more common than zebras. But it is not always correct sometimes at zebras and here's an interesting one that relates to the challenge i just talked about the million dollar challenge can it be falsified can it be disproved because that's actually a tricky thing and the example james randy used to give is that reindeer can fly well i can prove reindeer can fly by showing you a flying reindeer but to disprove that is very tricky because there might be just one reindeer in the entire world that can fly. And maybe he doesn't want to if I'm around. And this is something millions of people around the world believe in. Flying reindeer, you'll see references to it everywhere. Millions of people believe they're real. How can I disprove that reindeer can fly? I can't. I can't come up with a test for that. You can see the problem. Anyway, I find this to be an incredibly valuable resource, and it is part of the book Demon Haunted World, Science as a Candle in the Dark by Carl Sagan. I will have a link to that, too. I highly recommend you read it. It's a good resource for everybody, not just folks in van life. But these are definitely things folks in van life will want to have under their evaluative belt. Well, folks, thanks very much for listening. Once again, a little bit of a strange episode, but uh, that's okay. I'm a little bit strange. 
Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. And if you'd like to check out the YouTube channel, it's pretty easy to find. It's Built to Go, a YouTube channel, because everything I touch is going to say Built to Go, a whatever it is. But until next time, remember the words of Carl Sagan. Imagination will often carry us to worlds that never were. But without it, we go nowhere.